Hello, and welcome to Driverless. I'm your host, Zach Adams. Today's episode is part two of an interview featuring one of our IP attorneys, Jay Campbell, and Professor Bart Costco from the University of Southern California. Let's get rolling right back into today's interview and this episode of Driverless. I guess this is a good point since since we've started talking about what happened in the 60s and in the 80s yep. and 90s when I was more involved. Why is there a, a progression now to bring back neural networks? Why is neural nets, fuzzy logic, machine learning the vogue right now? Computer speed. Again, if I had a point to the two... Is it that easy? <laughs> it's that easy. Let me make the case. If I had a point to the two things that underlie modern AI and what you're going to be seeing in the next decade, certainly in the upcoming decade, it would be Moore's Law, which we'll get to in a second, and the mm-hmm. Law of Large Numbers. These are the two things to remember. Moore's Law was just an empirical tendency in the 60s, 70s, and 80s that the number of on-off switches, in effect, or circuits on a computer chip tended to double every two years. And of course, everyone thought, well, how long can that last? It only lasts another decade. As of today, Moore's law is, it's slowed somewhat, but it's still in effect. And that's still working with classical microcircuitry. We're about to jump over now into much more advanced, not just quantum computing devices, which we're starting to get to, but nanotube-based devices and something called graphene and things like that. So it is far from clear that the doubling or near doubling of density of chips every two or so years is has any end in sight. Uh, for years, we've heard it would be over by now, but we're in 2019. Moore's law, subject to a little slowdown, is still going slow. Is still going strong. And if you if you think about what that means, let me just if I can give you a, another algorithmic example. Your listeners may not have heard of. There's something that's very important here called the FFT, the Fast Fourier Transform. A lot of modern society and life has been improved because of the FFT. That's the name given to it by a great statistician, John Tukey, the fellow who introduced the word bits, by the way, binary units, John Tukey. Now, an ordinary Fourier transform is a way of taking a signal that we think of in time, like sound, and then seeing its spectral representation. And a really good analogy of this, if you take white light, as I'm sure you did in school, and hit it with, run it through a prism, you'll split it into its constituent colors, its light frequencies. And that's what we often do in engineering. We, we go to the transform domain, and then we, for example, with sunglasses, might want to filter out the blue part of the spectrum. And then we want to get back to the light. And so we would take the prism and flip it upside down. We'd have the inverse transform. Okay, so what? Here's the problem. If I have a system, a measurement with n slots in its description, we call a vector, the complexity of doing the Fourier transform is n squared. Okay, just follow me on this for a second. This is how potent. This is why, why Moore's law is so important. n squared to do an ordinary, what's called a DFT or discrete time Fourier transform. But using some clever tricks from the theory of complex numbers, using symmetry, the fast Fourier transform, FFT, was able to replace n squared with n logarithm n. Now, just think about that for a second. N times the logarithm of N, which is a much smaller number. That revolutionized modern image processing, modern speech processing. Just that simple reduction of one of the components of working with matrices like every kid learns in high school. That's the FFT. So we had, for years, a lot of algorithms, since the 60s at least, 
on how to do sophisticated image processing. And sure, we could use the FFT, but the ends were too big, Jay. So you would either have N squared or things like N cubed, even if you could speed them up somewhat with a fast Fourier transform. Along comes more law, Moore's law, and it allows these computations to be done at a level that's extremely fast relative to human perception. And that's all it has been by and large. So if you go back and look at the science of neural networks from the 60s to today in the so-called deep, deep learning scenario, and we're just dealing with the effects of the N, and Moore's law allows us to tackle much bigger problems at a rate that maybe is not as real time, but is near real time, uh, relative to human perception. And it's going to continue that way. That's the first point. So Moore's law, this, in, this speed up in the effective speed up in computation, because the sheer number of circuits we can pack on a chip has gone up exponentially for decades now. It looks like it's going to continue. The rate of the exponential will slow, but it'll still be exponential. Then there's the law of large numbers. And I say to you this, I think the best example of AI is not the cars you're talking about. It's not the latest thing I see advertised on TV. It's the nightly weather forecast and that weather map, because that's based on a lot of data processing techniques, based on some of the best physical models we have of meteorology, for example, generalizations and Newton's laws called the Navier-Stokes equations. And what may be the ultimate AI algorithm invented by von Neumann in 1947 while working on the H-bomb that we call Monte Carlo simulation, which in turn rests on this very potent result in statistics called the law of large numbers, which says if I take a bunch of averages, the more things I average, the more it looks like the actual population value. So if I want to know the average body weight of an American, let's say there's 350 million Americans, I could weigh all 350 million. That's the population. Of course, no one's going to do that. But we also know I can get a really good approximation of that by grabbing at random, let's say, a thousand Americans or a million. My claim to you is that fundamentally, that is what you're seeing, that the effect of Moore's law combined with that averaging result. In the case of the nightly weather map, it's running simulations of the future and then averaging them. For example, when you see a, the approach of a hurricane, you see the so-called spaghetti paths and they're averaged, or many AI systems. And finally, why? I'm, I'm giving you the deep technical insight because most of modern finance, modern quantum mechanics, and modern machine learning rests on something we denote as E, E of X, the expected value, the population average, which we never know. Whether it's in quantum mechanics, that's a form of energy, E of X in finance is known as the price, whether it's a simple price of a buy or sell a, a call or put option or an advanced synthetic uh, CDO or whatever the derivative happens to be. Or in the case of machine learning, what we have here are very complicated equations. They involve averages. We have to average our way through those averages. And then we turn to Moore's law to help us compute it in real time or near real time. And hence I claim that what you're seeing, and you will continue to see, the joint effects of classical statistics and modern statistics summarized in the law of large numbers on the one hand, and this incredible exponential advance in computing power that we call Moore's Law on the other. Nonetheless, I look at the weather forecast that it says 20% chance of rain, and I look outside, and uh, my favorite mathematician comes to mind, Bayes, and yes. I see that it is raining, and that 20% suddenly becomes 100%. <laughs> 
Um, By the way, it, it, I'm glad you mentioned. <laughs> if I can, I'm glad you mentioned base. Please do because because the fundamental result in machine learning and learning in general is called Bayes theorem. And let me just mm-hmm. remind the listeners of that. We we have guesses. We dignify them by calling them hypotheses. And in science, we write it as a letter H. Okay. And then we have the evidence, like you looking outside. And the hypothesis is it's going to rain. Then you look outside and get the actual measurement. Or the hypothesis is that that bump on your neck is cancerous. You take a blood test and you find out whether it is or isn't, for example. We have H and E. Our hypotheses, we can put probabilities on them. We can ask the machine oracle to do that. We can... We can ask God, we can ask ourselves, but those are just probabilities on hypotheses. What we want to do is once we've done that, in effect, is update the hypothesis probability, given the evidence. And that updating is the essence of learning, machine or otherwise. And it was captured by the Reverend Bayes and some of his followers after that. So what you can show is that modern machine learning, mathematically, is all about estimating those probabilities, not always in a purely Bayesian way, because that does require some good guess at these priors. But it is the effect of climbing a hill. To turn it around, when you're learning by back and forth training with the neural network, whether it's for a smart car or to recognize images or videos or whatever happens to be, Jay, what you're really doing, it turns out, we've only relatively recently learned this, is you're climbing a hill of probability. And the answer you seek is at the top of the hill. We often call that a max likelihood outcome. And one of the main results, and I'm happy to have proved this as a theorem, is that the algorithm used in deep learning called backpropagation is a special case of the most general way of climbing that hill. It's known as the EM algorithm, or the expectation maximization algorithm. And it's interesting that the way we train the neural network is a forward-backward algorithm. We go forward, we propagate Again, a picture of you, we get an error signal, and then using that, we propagate it backwards, and we do that millions or billions of times. And that's also what's happening in the EM algorithm. It's a forward step and a backward, and it gets to the top of the hill. Now, what we'd really like is to get to the top of the tallest hill of probability. That is still beyond our grasp, machine learning. It may always be. It's a big enough issue to get to the top of the hill. Indeed, Jay, in really complicated problems, we look at computationally, we're not even sure which way is up. And that's a big deal. So we have to estimate the direction, then we climb the hill of probability. But what has emerged out of all this is that old Reverend Bayes, in effect, was right, that the common language of machine learning AI today is probability theory. And it is just that. How do we update our beliefs, given the evidence, and continue to update them? Even the field of fuzzy logic, which on its face looked very different, uh, I was able to recently reformulate as well, is a form of Bayesian reasoning. And that gives us the ability to even open up these black boxes now and start talking about them. Bart, you mentioned uh, fuzzy logic, and that yes. takes me back <laughs> quite a ways <laughs> to an article you wrote uh, back when I was a youngster, I think, 1993. Yes. Nah, I guess not that much of a youngster. But anyway, like 25 years ago, and as I recall, you had used fuzzy logic, artificial intelligence, actually in a car. Um, mm-hmm. A smart car, an autonomous vehicle, essentially. A platoon, of course. You know, yeah. yeah, to um, control the acceleration, the braking of the car. Yes. Kind of our, I guess, adaptive cruise control today. But it's strange that while that was in 1993, you know, here we are 25 years later and it's becoming the vogue. Is that, again, because of Moore's Law and because the NVIDIA chip and being, being able to 
do these complex uh, well, I think, you know, analysis. That is, what is it? It's not the fuzzy part. The answer yes. It's because of these increasingly powerful chips that we are able to apply these old algorithms and deal with these computational problems that have inhibited them. Again, these you can go back and look at the books. They've been there a long time. In 93, I published an article in Scientific American called Fuzzy Logic, and your listeners always free to go to my webpage. I post those articles. I also published a popular book called Fuzzy Thinking, which you were good enough to mention earlier. And indeed, in July of 1993, Jay, and the beautiful Avocado Highway, it's called, in Southern California, Highway I Interstate 15, runs between, in effect, Los Angeles and San Diego. Uh, we did a test with California Transportation Caltrans on smart cars. And they have, to this day, on I-15 down there, what are called flex lanes. So yeah, I'm sure you've noticed the traffic tends to be denser in one direction in the morning and the afternoon. Wouldn't it be great if we could switch some of the lanes? They actually do that. And then when they're not doing that, they allow, I assume they still do this, experiments on the middle lanes that are kind of blocked off during the day when they're not as heavily of use. So we had two cars. We had, I had some graduate students in one car following an autonomous car in front doing what you said, a form of today would be called adaptive cruise control. There were different systems for the throttle, for braking, and, and the like. But uh, this is something your listeners may not be familiar with. The theory was already clear by the early 90s in smart cars that you could greatly increase the capacity of highways and a lot of other roads, not by just building more of them and they're fixed, but by having what are called platoons of cars. Instead of a every man for himself that we currently have, it can be much more efficient to do an effect what's on the internet where you're submitting bit packets often in, in clumps. And these are called platoons. It'd be a platoon leader. And with appropriate signals, you can enter and leave the platoon. It becomes increasingly easier to do that with things like GPS and, and modern sensors and all this algorithmic processing we're talking about. So that's been going on. It's coming back and the issues of platoons. But it was interesting that what put a kibosh on that, at least in terms of the big car makers in Detroit back in the 90s, was litigation. Because it was far from clear, it still is far from clear, who, who do you sue? What's the length of the product's liability when there is a smart car crash, but in general, a platoon crash? The old joke was you sue everybody. But it is really an issue, just in so many fields, you know, we have institutionalized fear of litigation, and it'll just take a long time to sort that out of how far back you want to you want to take it. That slowed it down. But meanwhile, fuzzy logic uh, kind of took off then, whereas the earlier effort in AI led to a lot of good demos, a lot of beautiful books, the movie 2001. But you couldn't point to a product, Jay, if you think about it. Back in the 70s or 80s, you say, well, that's that's an AI product. That's actually working out there. Whereas in the fuzzy case, there were hundreds of these, and there still are, even though they may not have the name of them. They largely came from Japan and South Korea because that's where most consumer electronics are produced. Like what? There was a famous camcorder. If you had a camcorder in those days, I'm not as convinced they use it today, they may still. They were, quote, fuzzy camcorders, which I'll explain in a moment. Washing machines, rice cookers, microwave ovens. I still have a Subaru that I drive, a Japanese-made <laughs> car, and the transmission's under fuzzy logic control. What's going on there? What's going on is a kind of balance between the black box and neural networks, which really gets limited. I, I, I mentioned that as you add more neurons, it's not a free lunch. As you add more deep layers, you have trouble. You lose 
the error signal you're trying to train with. So, for example, I mentioned the effect you have on the interest rate. It's minuscule. It gets lost in the economy. And there have been a lot of ad hoc ways to address that, but they have their limits. But even if you address it, Jay, you still have a black box. So the one fundamental problem with neural network is we don't know what it has learned when it's finished learning. We don't know. And when it learns something new, we don't know what is forgotten of the old. Exactly. It's too, much like, it's too much like a brain. Let me give you another problem. That fuzzy logic is recently cracked. When you train the neural network God here and you ask it a question, it gives you an answer. But it doesn't tell you the confidence of the answer. You know, think about that. So the confidence, you know, it, it'll answer any question you pose to it. But clearly the confidence in that answer will depend upon what you trained it with. And, and God forbid you get the algorithms wrong. We're assuming you get them right. So the neural network is too much of a black box. It's got inherent limitations. We don't know what's going on. We don't have, for example, a geometric theory of, of what those hidden neurons correspond to. And we, we just can't encode it. So how about this? How about you train on a neural network? And then we train on the neural network and convert it into a bunch of rules. And not just the old black-white rules of the early days of AI, but much more robust fuzzy logic rules. And that's where we are today and where we're headed. So if we take the case I used in the Scientific American article, Fuzzy Logic, of programming an air conditioner, and there are fuzzy logic air conditioners, you might have a fuzzy rule like this. If the air is cool, set the motor speed to slow. Okay, that's one rule. So you're programming in English. If the air is warm, set the motor speed to high. So that's a second rule. Now, but what do you mean by cool? What is cool air? And, and just for you, not just how it differs between people. Because as we change the degrees Fahrenheit, 80 degrees Fahrenheit is going to be less cool than 70 degrees Fahrenheit and so forth. But we're not likely to get an abrupt transition. And fuzzy logic at its root means shades of gray, means not black-white. Uh, you, you get that back as a limiting case. So we can represent cool air, for example, by a kind of bell curve, a kind of distribution, rather than the black-white rectangle that you'd have. So you might say, for example, look, any air between 70 degrees Fahrenheit and 75 is cool, otherwise not cool. Okay, that's like a pass-fail thing at those boundaries. Fuzzy logic gives you the shades of that. And when you have a, a robust rule, like if the air is cool, set the motor speed to slow. Slow is also fuzzy. Then you can allow any incoming temperature measurement to satisfy that to some degree. In the old AI case, it would either be on or off, either got cool air or not. Here we're saying, okay, the air, the 60 degree air is definitely cool, 90%. But then when I get something that's say 79 degrees Fahrenheit, it's only 40% cool. But I can deal with all those. So one rule goes a very long way. Mathematically, geometrically, we now know those rules define a kind of patch or blob. And, and what the air conditioner really is, is a surface that wiggles. And these rules put blobs over them and approximate it very quickly, in fact. So you could end up with a, often have a small number of rules to approximate a system. Here was an example that no one had ever cracked mathematically that we did a neural network. Actually, Bernie Woodrow did at Stanford, then I and my students did with a fuzzy system. How about backing up? So talk about cars. Just take the human cars, a truck, with a trailer attached. Have you ever done this, trying to back up a truck in a trailer and loading docks? Very, very difficult. Much more difficult than backing up your car. Have, have you done that, Jay? I'm curious. 
Oh yeah, yeah. I, and in fact, I I was stuck in traffic yesterday because somebody on my street was trying to tr- uh, get a U-Haul into his driveway and just couldn't <laughs> seem to Beautiful. figure it out. Beautiful. So uh, mathematically, we would approach this with control theory. There were early attempts to do that, and it it has to do with balancing an inverted pendulum. Okay, and that is saying instead mm-hmm. of balancing one pencil in your palm of your hands on its tip, you have two pencils with uh, connected. But it, it's like that. And very soon we figured out a way to do it. And some engineers in Japan backed up five truck, a truck with five trailers. It sort of became a test case. Now, the neural network did it by this way. It simulated it in, in a plane, like on the screen of your computer, backing up in a truck and trailer. It had some basic dynamic models of the joint there. But otherwise, it, it learned a way of doing it and it cracked it. And it couldn't explain how it did it. Couldn't give you a confidence level on how it did it, but it did it. So I said, well, we can do that with the fuzzy logic case. So we took the fuzzy case. We use a neural-like component to figure out the first set of rules from the data or from the expert. And we actually asked some truck drivers how they did it. And with a small number of rules, I think the first time we had 30 or 40 rules, we could back up the truck and trailer. And then we could throw them out. And I heard at one point, I don't know if it's the case, that someone got it down to four or five rules. But the thing is, you may not like my rules, but you can look at them. They're modular. It's not a black box. And what you can do, Jay, to test these systems, so you learn it first with the neural network. You convert that, and you can see a paper on this from 1992 on my webpage. You convert the neural system into a box of rules, and then you can, for example, throw out at random 5% of the rules to see how robust it is. Or another way you can test these systems that you really can't do in the neural case, we try to sabotage them. How about a rule that tells the truck driver, always turn to the left and see to what extent the knowledge you've encoded in these robust rules counteract that and so forth. Now, where we are today is once we realize that neural networks are probability systems, this Bayesian thing you talked about, and then I was able to show that a system of five rules, like in my air conditioner, I use two, but an example in the paper, I use five really turns out to be a collection of five probability type bell curves. We call it a mixture with a very special condition, but it's ultimately a probabilistic system. Here's what we can do, Jay. We can let you train your black box neural network as deep as you want, all the hype you want, throw the NVIDIA chips at it, go for it. But when you're done, this black box that you don't know what it learned, you don't have a confidence measure. We can then train on it, take samples from it, and grow, we often call this a foam, a rule foam, but grow a set of rules that give you back essentially the same performance. And then we can go about tweaking those rules and improving the performance, adding other rules, taking them out. And not just that, we can use this theorem you, alleged, you referred to, alluded to, base theorem, to tell us for each input how much any one of the given rules fired. Now, we've never had that kind of insight into the innards of the guts of neural network before. We can do that now with fuzzy systems. And this just sounds like an advertisement on late night TV. Uh, you buy this, you get all this. But not only that, but with your fuzzy system. Chamois. Exactly. The, the Ginsu knife. Uh, you, you now get a measure we call it the conditional variance that tells you for each input, when you ask it a question, the output has associated with it a confidence level. And then what it's really telling you this is what you want to know is how much is a system interpolating, guessing based on what it's learned instead of using. Now, one consequence of this result, Jay, is that all those applications that a lot of us published back in the 80s and 90s, and a lot of them are still out there. And there's many, many 
hundreds, now in the thousands of fuzzy applications. Have I wouldn't call it a malpractice, but it turned out we just didn't know that the same information we used to use the fuzzy system, whether it was to tune the camcorder or to shift the gears in the Subaru, the same system, which is really computing an average, also would allow you to tell you how confident you should be in that average. And again, if you're interested in that sort of thing, it's on my webpage. So at the well, higher level of AI, I mean, just the last point is yeah. neural networks are sub-symbolic. They're crude pattern recognitions, the kind of stuff that brains do tend to do. We can't explain how to name that tune. You can name it or not, but how you did it, it's a different story. Sequential reasoning is more rule-based, that's symbolic. And one of the exciting things about the, the new resurrection of fuzzy logic, kind of like the resurrection that recently took place in neural networks, is we're moving from the combining the sub-symbolic neural world with the symbolic world of structured AI. That concludes part two of our interview series featuring Jay Campbell and Professor Costco. As always, you can reach us on Twitter at at underscore driverless or via email at driverless at tuckerellis.com. <laughs>